Psalm 19, to the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, there are no words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of Yahweh is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of Yahweh is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of Yahweh are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of Yahweh is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of Yahweh is clean, enduring forever. The rules, or we could also translate that as rulings, the rulings of Yahweh are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. That means thinking that you're all that. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words in my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. And let's just pray that as our prayer this morning. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing, be acceptable in your sight through Jesus Christ, who is our rock, our Redeemer, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Here's a question this morning as we start to look at this psalm, Psalm 19. Does God speak to you? Does God speak to, to you? Are you hearing his voice? We've heard a few sermons recently by some of our uh, visiting pastors and friends in ministry who have asked us that. Do you hear God's voice speaking to you? This psalm clearly tells us that God is not only speaking, he is always speaking to you. All day and all night, he's speaking to you. Are you listening? That's the question. I hope that you will listen to this, the word of God this morning and learn how he's speaking to us. First, through the creation and then through the scriptures, and then through our own soul, through His Holy Spirit. So the question is, is God speaking? Yes, He's clearly speaking to us in creation. He is surely speaking to us in His scriptures, and He is speaking through His Holy Spirit in our innermost soul, and in our spirit. The first few verses of this psalm, Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6, speak about an inescapable, excuse me, inescapable glory. Glory inescapable. The writer of the psalmist, David, is speaking about the, the revelation of God written on the canvas of creation. Let's look at that glory inescapable as he reveals it to us. First, he says, in the heavens. The heavens declare the glory of God. And then he lists off a litany, a list of other words that talk about speech that God is giving us in creation. The heavens are declaring God's glory. The skies are proclaiming his handiwork. Speech is being poured out. 
poured forth. He's revealing knowledge in the creation. And words are going out constantly in a wordless way, the text tells us. There are actually no words, the Bible says here, in verse 3. There's no speech. There's actually um, wordless words that God is speaking in his creation. It's kind of like watching a silent movie. I know that we don't have many silent movies these days, but have you ever watched a silent movie before? You're old school? Yeah? You're an old soul? Okay, so you know, you go to the Art Institute. Let's try another one. You go to the Art Institute. You ever been to the Art Institute downtown Chicago and you look at these beautiful, glorious paintings and you're like, wow, wow, I have no idea what that means. What, what is this that I'm looking at? Wow, it's beautiful. What is this? And then you, you ask someone, uh, a curator maybe, or someone who's, who's studied this work of art, you see the caption or the narration under it, and then you begin to hear the story. It's like, oh, now it makes sense. See, the, the wordless pictures of creation the silent movie and theater that God has presented before us needs some sort of explanation. But we get that it's glorious. It's inescapable. This is a powerful, glorious place we live in. Planet Earth. The galaxy that we're in. The universe that God has placed us in. It's an amazing place. But there's no words. God is writing his messages in the sky, but it's not like sky writing, like planes. You have to have eyes to see and ears to hear this Speechless speech, unspoken yet undeniable glory. This uninterrupted, day after day, night after night, these heavenly and earthly uh, creations are pouring forth speech, uninterrupted, universal, but we have to learn to listen with our eyes. So the question is, Jesus has asked his own disciples, he's asking us today as his disciples, do you have eyes to see and ears to hear the glory of God in creation? Listen with your mind's eye for just a moment about a supernova star, okay? One of my favorite events in our universe, besides the, the death and resurrection of Jesus, is the supernova star. I just love this. Stars. Did you know that they collapse eventually? Think of our sun. Think of stars much greater and more dense and massive and brighter than our sun. Think of the stars as they collapse eventually. They're doing it because gravity is pulling all of that stellar debris together into itself, and eventually the density of the center of that star is so high, the density is so compact and pushed together that the star can't collapse anymore. And so what happens is all the pressure from this stored pressure is released in a single brilliant burst called a supernova. Or a nova, if it's a small one. I like the supernova because it's bigger. And so depending on the mass of the star, this explosion gives off more energy than an entire galaxy of 100 billion stars. I don't quite understand what that means, but I know it's pretty awesome. One star bursting into an energy explosion releasing the equivalent of 100 billion other stars. Now, what's left behind? Well, think about July 4th. If you came to our house, stood on our rooftop, we watched some pretty amazing fireworks. Some of those first-timers who got to view fireworks from our rooftop saw really professional-level fireworks, and I'm always waiting for their response, and truly they came through and said, wow, that was really awesome and unexpected. I didn't think you'd have this on the south side in your backyard, but there it was. Amazing. Now, what are we, what are we left with after those explosions, after those amazing kabooms and all the brilliant light? Here's what we're left with. I picked one off my roof this morning. We're left with a little cardboard core like that. See? It's just... A light, little nothing. That's all we have left after the human... Thank you to the Chinese for inventing fireworks. But that's all we have left. After July 4th, it's all over. That's it. 
What do we have left after a supernova explosion releases 100 billion stars worth of energy? Here's what we have left. We have left the neutron core, a dense, collapsed neutron core that is about 10 miles wide. This is rough estimate to know. Um, 10 miles wide, but it has a mass greater than our sun. So think of a place much smaller than the city of Chicago, but a mass greater than the sun, which is, you know, exponentially bigger than our Earth. Now, the density of this neutron core left behind, it's not cardboard, here's how dense this leftover is from the explosion, the remnants, the after effects. It's, okay, sit down, make sure you're sitting down, a billion tons per teaspoon full. Dense. What does that mean, a billion tons per teaspoon full? I have no idea how to think about that, but I know it's awesome. It's inescapably glorious. What are we talking about here? This is the leftovers of God's explosion of a supernova star. This is the equivalent of us flickering the lights on and off as easily. God just says, star exists, and star, poof, you're gone, and what's left over is something almost as brilliant and amazing and mind-boggling after it's all done. Supernovas declare the glory of God. Don't you think? I think. Don't you think? Yes. Come on, guys. Don't forget. We're on the south side. You can talk to me. It's okay. I'm easy to talk to. Okay. Psalm 97, 6 through 7, says it a little bit differently than Psalm 19. It says this. The heavens proclaim His righteousness. His righteousness. How do stars and the sun and the moon and the creation proclaim His righteousness? And all the people see His glory. And then Psalm 97, verse 7 says, All worshippers of images are put to shame. Are you worshiping anything other than God alone right now? I mean, let me just come over here and pick this back up again. Remind you, anything else worshiping is just like this cardboard leftover core from a firework. That's all you've got left. After you put all your energy into it, after you put all your time and money into it, and it's a brilliant explosion, maybe it's a brilliant hormonal release you have, or maybe it's a brilliant uh, amount of money you achieved somehow, maybe it's, you, know, you got your life stream, but if, if it's not God, this is all that you have left right here. Psalm 97 says, those who worship images are put to shame, who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship Him, all you gods. I heard this week that one of our uh, summer campers has been listening to a lot of the you know, rap where like Kanye and Jay-Z pretty much think of themselves as gods. These men who are famous and rich have actually said things like, I am God or I am you know, Savior and these types of things. All you who think you're gods this is all you've got. This is all you are. Worship Him, all you gods. Gods, you know, so-called. The heavens proclaim His righteousness, His glory, and all the peoples can see it. It's inescapable. God is glorious like no other. And we're just getting a glimpse of His glory, just a tiny peek at the fringes of His work. At this very moment, did you know that there are about 3,500 thunderstorms happening on planet Earth? That's about 6,000 bolts of lightning every minute flashing right now across the globe. Did you know that at this very moment, a single lightning bolt, out of those 6,000 a minute, a single lightning bolt is carrying 25,000 volts. Now you know if you stuck your finger in this outlet or that one over there in the wall, that's 120 volts. So we're talking 200 times more voltage per inch in that lightning bolt. You know how big a lightning bolt is? Pretty big. There was one measured across Dallas, Texas, 
118 miles long. 25,000 volts per inch times 118 miles. I didn't bother to do math, do math on that one, but I think I'd done it a few years ago, and I, 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 don't, I haven't checked my numbers, but 162 billion volts in that lightning bolt. 162 billion volts. And Habakkuk, the prophet you may have never have heard of or read his book, but it's a little prophecy in the Bible, a minor prophet, Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 3 through 4 says this, God's glory covered the heavens. Think of the lightning storms happening right now. His glory covered the heavens, and his praise fills the earth. Is this praise filling your heart right now? Is it filling churches all over the world who recognize the inescapable glory of our God? He's speaking to us all the time, all across the globe right now. His splendor, Habakkuk says, was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hand. Think of the lightning bolt. Rays flashed from God's hand where his power was hidden. See, what we see is just a glimpse. Like... Hidden power, sneaking through his fingers, that's all we see. We can't even see the immensity and grandeur and greatness of the true power and glory of God. He's just giving us a peek because we couldn't handle the truth otherwise. He only gives us little teaspoonfuls, and I'm not talking about 100 billion tons per teaspoonful. He's, he's spoon-feeding us little tiny bits of glory because that's all we can handle. I want to go deeper. I want to hear God speaking more, don't you? I want to know his power and glory more and more. I want to be left speechless as I look at the creation and see these wordless speeches that he's pouring forth. I want to be left speechless more often in the presence of God. I want to leave my phone on the table more with its Facebook and its social media and its emails that constantly require my attention. I want to put that on the side more and more and get more of God's glory in my heart. Romans 1 verse 20 says, God's invisible attributes, remember, you can't see his true glory. You only see the after effect. You see the little core that's left behind, and it's amazing. You, you only see the after effects of God's glory, but his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. You can see that there is a God and that he's awesome. I mean, that's clearly perceived throughout the world, throughout all of history, ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made so that people are without excuse. That's what Romans 1.20 says. Nobody can say there's not a God. Nobody can say that with an honest heart. Because the Bible teaches us that everyone knows there's a God, but what they do is they get very creative at ignoring him, shutting him out, suppressing the truth is the language that Romans 1 uses, pushing the truth deeper and deeper until you forget about it. And you think there's no more God, or you act like it at least, but the Bible says his glory is inescapable. Everybody's known for as long as the world's existed that there is a God, that he's powerful, and that he's alive. Amen? We cannot deny it, but we try. We cannot ignore it, but we still do. Yet God is still gracious to us. Even though he's pouring out speech, he's speaking to us all the time, Acts chapter 14 says that God has not left himself without a witness. God said, can I get a witness? There was none. There was the silence. So he said, all right, I'm going to be my own witness. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do good to all the people on the earth by giving them rains from heaven, fruitful seasons, and I'm going to satisfy their hearts with food and gladness. Acts chapter 14, verse 17. Without God, there would be no rain, no food, no seasons, no happy hearts. We wouldn't actually exist if there was no God. But God says, okay, I'll provide a witness. Creation, the canvas of creation. I'm going to paint my wordless messages to my people down there on the earth 
so they can see that there is a good God who's taking care of them. Even though they ignore me, I'm still graciously providing for all their needs. Think about the book of Job. When, when God takes this suffering man, who was a godly man, but he wasn't perfect, and he wasn't God, God asked Job, let me ask you, look at creation, look at the sun, the moon, the stars, the animals, the mountains, the oceans, all the beautiful things of creation, the, the you know, supernova stars, which Job probably wouldn't have known about back then, but we know, and he says to Job, did you do any of this? Did you think this up or create this? Did you flick on the light switch and boom, supernova, neutron core, 100 billion tons per tissue? Did you do that? Are you able to handle this, Job? Can you really see the true glory that's hidden in my hand? you want to see what God really is? And he just gives him a small glimpse, and Job is blown away, silent, repenting, in dust and in ashes. God says, nobody can do what I do. There's no other God. You have no idea what I can do. I give you everything. I do everything. And yet you're still complaining that I'm not doing enough or that I don't do it your way? Really? We're dealing with God here. Okay? We need to recognize inescapable glory. That's what we're dealing with. This is the living God. This is the creator of the universe. This is our maker. We exist in and through and to him. Every breath we breathe, as we sang, is from him. I like what Elizabeth Elliot says. She says, Sometimes we think we're doing pretty well as Christians, but did you know that even clams obey God more than you do? Clams. Have you ever had a clam? Have you ever eaten a clam? you ever seen a clam? It's just kind of gross, kind of slimy. It sits in this little shell in the water. But clams are actually obeying God more thoroughly and consistently than you and I are. Because clams and all of the other creation, not including humans, is doing exactly what God made it to do. Glorifying God. I mean, the sun rises, the sun sets, you know, it rises, it shines, it gives God the glory, glory. That's a shout out for some of you from back in the 80s, you know. Um, it rises, it does its job. It sets and it shines just what God created the sun to do. Supernovas explode just when he wants them to, just exactly as he told them to. But what do we do? We go our own way. We depart from God's commands. We think that we've got more glory and we have more wisdom than God himself. But... A clam, granted, a, a clam cannot understand creation. A clam cannot glorify God in the same way as we can. A clam doesn't understand its purpose. And we do. When we're in accord with God's will, when we're thinking sanely and after the thoughts of God himself, we understand that even only a Christian can fully understand our purpose in this life. A non-Christian doesn't understand their full purpose on this earth. They can be awed, and they can do amazing things. They can be smarter than any of us. They wouldn't ever understand their true purpose in life, in the universe, in eternity, if they are not recognizing the inescapable glory and reality of God. A few years ago, we showed a, a documentary called uh, Collision at the University of Chicago. It was a debate between uh, an atheist who's no longer alive anymore, Christopher Hitchens, brilliant atheist, so he got one big thing wrong, there is a God actually, you know, so, you know, a brilliant fool is what I like to call atheists who are that smart, much more brilliant than me, but still the Bible says he's a fool, and here's a pastor, Douglas Wilson, a guy in Iowa, of all places, debating Christopher Hitchens, and in one part in the movie, Christopher Hitchens tells the audience that they're debating, he says, ladies and gentlemen, I don't need God to be awestruck. 
I don't need God to understand glory. I don't need to believe in some God so that I can be amazed at the creation all around me. He didn't use the word creation, but you know, the world and all its events. And he says one of my favorite events in the universe is the event horizon of a black hole. Now follow me for a second. Black holes are theoretical, and no one's ever really seen one, but there's this you know, theory that there's matter and even light and all sorts of debris out in space that are being sucked into black holes, and it just keeps going down, down, down into this bottomless pit. It's just like eating everything up in its path. And on the edge of the black hole would be called the event horizon or the lip of the black hole. And that's where everything just, you, you see it, and all of a sudden, boom, it's gone. It doesn't exist anymore as far as we can see. Even light, physicists say, is sucked into the black hole. Light cannot continue moving forward. It's pulled backwards, it's reversed, and it's swallowed by the black hole. Now, Christopher Hitchens says, that's amazing, and I don't need God to amaze me. I've got the event horizon of a black hole. What I think is really funny and obvious and sad at the same time is that we get the event horizon, the black hole, and the one who designed it and created it, and superintends it. We get the event, and we get the creator who made the event. We get the creation, and we get the creator. I, that's what I want. I don't want just the creation to inspire me and awe me. I want the God who thought that up and makes it happen and keeps me from going into it. Okay, That's what I want to see more and more is the inescapable glory of God the Creator. Now, this nonverbal, speechless communication God's giving us in creation can be misunderstood. Kind of like when some of you guys give me nonverbal cues when I'm preaching. Like, I'm not sure if you're saying, keep preaching, stop preaching, or, you know, more of the same, or like, move on. And sometimes, like, when I get a kick under the table, I look at my wife and I'm like, are we playing footsie? Or are you like telling me to shut up again? Like, what does that mean? If there's no words, I don't always understand exactly what we're talking about. Okay, nonverbal communication is very important, but it can't be all that we have and use to communicate with each other. Same way with God. He gives us the nonverbal canvas of creation, the beauty and glory of creation, but it's not enough to teach us about our sin and about why they're suffering and about what's going to happen to me in my sorrows and my unemployment and my loss of friendship and life itself. What's going to happen to me? I don't learn that by studying creation. We need something additional to that. We need words. We need to understand why there are hurricanes, why is there cancer, why are there earthquakes. We see them happening. It reminds us that there's a God much more powerful than us, and we are very small people on this planet. But why do these things happen? That's what Psalm 19 is about in its second half. It's not just that we're receiving a book called General Revelation, which is the world around us. We are also given a book which is called Special Revelation, the Bible, Scripture. Let's turn our thoughts to that now in Psalm 19, verses 7 and following. There's the inescapable glory of God, but then there's an incomparable truth, or you could say incomparable. You can't compare anything to the truth of God's Word. We're talking about the Scriptures which are revealing God to us now. A truth incomparable, the written words of God in the Scriptures. So God actually had made a covenant with creation. Did you realize that in Genesis 1? And then we see it more clearly in Genesis um, 8 and 9, after the flood upon the earth when God wipes away all the people except for Noah and his family. He restarts the whole project. He recreates the earth, and he gives the earth a blessing. And he says this in Genesis chapter 9, verses 16 to 17. He says, I will remember my covenant that's between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and all the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy the flesh, to destroy all flesh. 
when the bow, that's the rainbow, is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that's on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and all flesh that's on the earth. God's made a covenant with all of creation. He loves his creation. He establishes a covenant with the sun, the moon, the stars, the seasons to always operate harmoniously, in synchrony, balanced just perfectly. You know, the, the distance from the earth to the sun, the perfect distance so we don't fry. You know, so we get enough heat so that we can survive and live and not freeze to death. I mean, everything is perfectly worked out. He's made a covenant. He says, I will not change that covenant. But then he's made a covenant beyond that with his people through the scriptures. The covenant not only of creation, but the covenant of redemption. He took a people in Exodus 19, led by Moses, out of Egypt, into the wilderness. He said, I'm going to make a covenant with you, and you're going to be my special people, my treasured possession." a priesthood, a nation of kings, all of you royalty. Okay? There was one king in Egypt, Pharaoh, you were all slaves. Now I'm going to make all of you kings and queens, priests. There's not just one priest you go to, you're all going to be a priesthood of believers. God said, this is a special redemption covenant. I'm going to save you. I'm going to speak words to you now. You don't just have to look at the rainbow and say, oh, how pretty. You can know the words and the message behind the rainbow, which is, I love you, and I will never judge you again like that, and I'm going to judge my son instead of you. He'll take the judgment instead of you. We don't know any of that by looking at the rainbow, but the scriptures tell us all of it and more. And even the name of God that's used in Psalm 19, in the first few verses about creation, it uses the generic term God, Elohim. But now that we get into verses 7 through 11, it's using the word what over and over for God. What's the name? Yahweh. Right. The Lord. The covenant name. The personal name of God. We're moving beyond the general to the personal. We're moving beyond power and glory to now grace and truth. And there's six angles of Scripture that are described here in verses 7 through 11. Six Scripture descriptions. Words about the Word of God. The first is the law. The law of Yahweh is perfect, reviving the soul. Now, the word law there doesn't just mean do, do this and don't do that. It means the instruction or the way of the Lord. It's like all of his teachings and instructions together. And the, the ways of the Lord, the law of the Lord, the Torah of Yahweh is perfect. We can also translate that it's whole or complete. There's nothing lacking. It's got everything you need for life and godliness. And it revives your soul. You could also translate that word as it returns you. It, it, it causes you to repent, to be restored to the image of God that you've been made to be. Now, a lot of us, we read the Bible, and it sometimes draws us to think, I can't do this, I can't keep this, I don't want to serve a God like this. But when God is working in your heart, and when you're thinking clearly by his help, you begin to see that his law is perfect and complete, there's nothing lacking, and it begins to turn your heart, to change you, to draw you in close. And then it says, that his testimonies are sure. The testimonies of Yahweh are sure, verse 7, making wise the simple. What are God's testimonies? Well, it's God's word about himself. You know, I swear by my own name. I need a witness. No one's a witness. God says, I'll be my own witness. I'm going to tell you about myself. His testimonies are sure. You can count on them. They're firm. They're solid. It's not like walking through a muddy path where you begin sinking in quicksand. It's firm ground. You can trust what he says about himself. He swears by his own name that this is who he is. And it makes us wise when we're simple. 
Well, simple doesn't just mean like I live off the land, I'm an organic type person, eat a lot of nuts and berries. No, simple means you're not as smart as you need to be, you're not as mature as you need to be. It's probably not as strong as saying you're a fool, which is also how the Proverbs use the word uh, simple. But it's probably saying something like you're going to grow and mature as you look to the testimonies of God because that's your sure foundation and firm ground. Now, just think about it like this. Everyone in this room, no matter how old or young you are, hopefully you're wiser than you were five years ago. I think everybody in here is over five. And you're probably wiser than you were ten years ago, if you're over ten. Now, if you're over 20 years old, hopefully you're wiser now than you were 20 years ago. And I can expect and hope that if God is in your life, you will be wiser in ten years from now than you are right here as you're sitting listening to me. You're not as wise right now as you need to be, and neither am I. We don't get what we need to get right this minute, but in 10, 20, 30 years, in eternity, we're going to be very wise as time goes on. So whatever problems you have with the Bible or about anything I've said so far, about anything you've read in the Scripture, or even problems with people and how they understand the Bible, be patient. What will you think in 10 or 20 years about this problem? You might have that problem solved if you stay at it and don't give up. If you continue to look for solutions and pray for answers, you'll be much wiser down the road than you are right now. So if you say, I don't like what the Bible says about this, I'm closing it, I'm done, I'm going to just say that's that's a stupid thing to do. You're going to be much smarter later. And if you're smart later, if you close the Bible and put it down, you'll pick it up later and you'll understand it better. But that's not really a way to learn is to close it. It's to, to go on with the next verse, the precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart and the commandment of Yahweh is pure, enlightening the eyes. When you read these things and you're wise, it begins to make you wiser. Your eyes open and they're enlightened even more. Your heart begins to rejoice in these truths. The precepts of the Lord simply mean His directions, His orders. Now that I'm a chaplain in the army, they give me orders. Once you report to this place at this time, I have to go. When, when God gives you orders, you, you have to go where he sends you. And he provides the GPS, you could say, or a map. You know, there's a thing called a map we used to use. Unfold it. You can never get it folded back quite correctly. But now we have GPS. All you have to do is turn it on and off. And it gets you to where you're going. It's the precepts of the Lord to get you where you're going. And the precepts of the Lord are true or they're straight. They're not crooked. They don't lead you off into the ditch. They keep you on the road. And that makes us happy. When Jesus says, follow me, we say, okay, Lord, yes, I will follow you wherever you lead me. We're happy to. The commands of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes, just like the sun itself. The sun, we're told in verse 6, you can't escape its heat or its light. When it's in the air, uh, when it's in the sky shining, especially in the Middle East, I can imagine, it's hot. You can't get away from it. Same way with the, Lord, the Lord's own word. It's pure, it's bright, it's glorious. It gives us light and heat. It enlightens our eyes and our minds to know God better. So don't close your eyes to his word and his truth. And in today's um, world, in our culture today, there's been many changes, you know, rapid changes. The internet, technology, all these things have changed things dramatically. And there's been the sexual revolution since the 60s in America. I mean, all sorts of things have changed, ethically speaking. There are things that are on TV, out in public, that nobody would even talk about 50 years ago. And don't think that I'm just an old fogey. Because I used to think the same thing. Like, oh, that's what all the old people say. But do you know that things that were only done in darkness just a few decades ago are now being paraded in the streets? And this is not enlightenment. When immorality leaves the shadows and the darkness and comes out into the light, that's not enlightenment. 
God says true enlightenment is my commands. They're pure. They're not immoral. They're pure. And they give you wisdom and light. We're not parading darkness and evil publicly anymore. We're, we're going into God's Word in, in private places so that He can deal with our junk, our darkness, our evil inside of us. So that we can be truly wise and understand how to live in this culture today. So he says then something a little bit off the rhythm. He then, instead of describing the word of God, he then says the fear of Yahweh is clean and it endures forever. So now he's not talking about the word per se. He's talking about us and how we receive the word. Do you fear the Lord? Do you fear Yahweh? Do you stand in awe before this God and his word? And if you have a fear of the Lord that trusts him and loves him and respects him, then you are living what he calls a clean life. It doesn't mean you're perfect or that you're better than other people. It, it really should be translated something like, or it could be translated, it's, it's genuine, it's not false. You can't say the fear of the Lord is faking it. You can't really fear the Lord in some false way. You can do a lot of other things and fake it, but you can't fear the Lord. That's true, it's genuine. When you stand in awe of God, it's powerful. Something changes within you. And it continues forever and ever, the word says here. And then finally, the last description is, His rules are true and righteous altogether. I think we, we should translate this something more like his rulings are true because it's more of like a justice, legal courtroom type language. His rulings, what he decides, are right. If God says it, then that's settling it. And they're true, they're trustworthy, you can count on them, and all together they're righteous. That means all the words of this book are righteous. I know some of you like to think, well, I like the New Testament better than the Old, or that's a whole section I just skip over. I understand some of them, some of the words of the Bible seem more helpful than others. And we like to meditate on some of them, and they, they bless our soul in other ways than, you know, reading through the census, for instance. You know, I got that. But all these words are true. They're all together true. And there's two words we use in theology to describe the Bible. Inerrant and infallible. Inerrant means what? It's without error, right? Inerrant, without error. No mistake, it's true. Infallible means it will not lead us astray. It leads us into the truth. It's trustworthy. You can count on it. God's not going to say, hey, come follow me. And then, ha, tricked you. Now I've got you where I wanted you. No, he leads you in a good place. These words are true, and they're trustworthy. You can count on them. All these scripture descriptions are not just some random words in a book or some book itself. This is actually the character and the heart of God flowing to you and me. This is the speech of God's own heart pouring out on paper so you can know him and love him. The law of Yahweh is Yahweh's Word to you, his heart for you, his mind, his actions, his covenant towards you as people. And, and the Bible says here in verse 10 and 11, what a precious book, more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. Now, I know that at camp this past week, I asked the kids, who wants $10? And all the kids went crazy. Ah, $10, yeah. And then I'm also giving away uh, an audio Bible. I think I forgot to do it this week. I was trying to give away an audio Bible. It's like little earbuds and everything. You get the whole Bible on audio. Giving one of those free every day. And then I was like, who wants the free audio Bible? And they're like, I, I think I might want that. I'm not sure. So excited about the $10. Not so excited about the Bible. And it's just revealing our hearts. Are, is this book more desirable than gold and much? Fine, gold, 24 karat gold, a lot of it, a lot of money, stacking it. I mean, what would make you happier? To have more time to read the Bible, 
or to make more money. Just be honest. I mean, come on. Be honest. I know you. You'd want the money. Most of you. You'd say, if I could have more money. Not all of you. I know some of you well enough that not all of you would say that. What does your heart say? Do I treasure God's word more than anything? Or is it anything else acting as God in my life? An idol. i got to have that. I don't care what I have to do to get it. That's an idol. If we take it away from you, you cry like a little baby. You sleep in bed all day. You don't want to get out. If, if you lose that thing that you just love and you can't let your little greedy hands off of, that's an idol. David says, my treasure is the word of Yahweh. Now, I didn't ask my wife if I could share this, but I hope it's okay. I'm going to share it anyway. I might get a kick or some nonverbals right now, but I'm not sure. I think I'm just going to keep saying it. Um, this past week, we found out that thousands of dollars from our bank are missing. And we had a few months ago, we were trying to transfer some money from our retirement um, account, which I've been saving for retirement since I was in high school. Okay, So, you know, put a lot of work into this. It's not a whole lot now. We don't put a whole lot in every year, but we have something in there. And thousands of dollars unaccounted for. Two banks. One's transferring into the other bank, and this bank and that bank aren't sure where, where it is. Now, did I freak out? No, I didn't. Why? You know, 20 years ago, maybe 22, 3 years ago, I'd have probably freaked out. Because money was my God. It was much more important to me. And I need money. You need money. I'm not trying to say that money's bad. I'm just saying thousands of dollars. We don't know where it is. Now, of course, we're interested in finding out where it is, and we're asking them to do research, but it's been a week and a half almost, and we don't know where it is. But I'm, I'm okay. I'm just calm, cool, and collected. I'm not worried about it, because I know God's got it. And also, because money's not my treasure. I mean, what if the money really was gone? You know, probably about a third of my retirement savings. Hmm. I'm sure God would provide. That's what he would do. And I'm not boasting in my goodness, oh, look how faithful and good I am. I'm, I'm such a good person that trusts God. I'm actually boasting in God right now. God's better than money. That's what I'm saying. I'm not better than any of you. I'm just saying God's better than everything else. Do you believe that? Are you, are you resting in that? Is your heart willing to say, I desire you more than gold, thousands and thousands of dollars? I'd rather have you, God. I'd rather re read your word and, and know it and, and find a home in it. A Chinese pastor left the nation of China for 30 years, came to America, and went back to China. And when he visited again, he found that all the churches he had started and all the believers that he had discipled were no longer there. He couldn't find any of them. How heartbreaking that must have been. All that work and ministry, and now nothing to show for it. But there was a woman that someone pointed out and said she's living over there, and he found one of his old friends and sisters in the church, and he waited at her house for her to return from her job, which was late at night, and he discovered that she'd been put in prison for 20 years while he was gone, recently released, and now the government had assigned her the job of cleaning the sewer systems of the city. When the pastor asked this godly old woman, what do you need, she simply asked for a Bible. Hers had been confiscated or taken away 20 years ago when she was in prison. And the pastor then left to collect the things she needed. He went to other churches and got money, clothing, and a Bible for her. When he came and presented the clothing to her, and a large amount of donated money from the church, she didn't say thank you. She didn't, her face didn't change. And he thought, why is she so ungrateful for all this work, all the sacrifice the church has given? And she just sat there. And she said, do you have the Bible? 
They took the Bible out of the box and she clutched it to her heart and just started saying, precious, precious, precious. And when he left the next morning early, when it was still dark, to go on to his next place, he found her right where he had left her, reading her Bible with her lamp, where she'd been all night long. More precious than anything else. That's the Word of God. Then he says it's sweeter than honey. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them is great reward. What's my reward? Keeping your word. Even the warnings. I hear the warnings. They sound sweet to me. Thank you for telling me not to drive where the bridge is out, and I would plummet to my death. Thank you, God. Thank you for telling me that cigarettes cause lung cancer. I'm not going to smoke them. Thank you for telling me not to marry that person through the wisdom of others who know me because I could really ruin my life if I do that. Thank you for telling me that money is not God and it will never make me happy. Thank you for the warnings. That's my reward, that you keep me alive and happy in the things that are really valuable. Reality is what you've got me rooted in. Thank you for showing me reality through your law, your commands, your promises, and all of your word altogether. C.S. Lewis writes in his book, The Reflection on the Psalms, he says this is his favorite psalm, Psalm 19. I like it. I wouldn't say it's my favorite, but I like it a lot. And C.S. Lewis says, in his chapter devoted on this one phrase, a whole chapter devoted to sweeter than honey, from Psalm 19, a whole chapter, he says, let's talk about that phrase, how is the law of God sweeter than honey? It sounds a little strange for our modern ears to think that when someone says, the command is sweeter than honey. What is the command? Don't commit adultery. How is that sweeter than honey? Especially if your husband's beating you and another man is showing you affection and attention. How is it delightful and sweet to hear God say, stay married to this man? I'm not saying keep getting beaten. You might want to go ahead and leave now and find some safe place to stay. Go into hiding, perhaps. But he says, hold on. He says to a hungry person who's maybe homeless and penniless, he says, don't steal. Now, how does that sound delightful and sweet to a man who's sitting there with a fresh loaf of bread just out of the oven, and no one's looking, and there it is on the counter, and it's not his, but he's, he's hearing this, do not steal. How does that sound sweet to him? That bread would taste sweet to him, not the commandment. How are God's commandments sweet to us, especially when we don't like them half the time and don't keep them much of the time? Well, David says this. He says, your commandments are sure. They're firm. They're altogether true. I know that this is true, that this is solid, that when I'm walking down the road and I fall into a pit or I get into quicksand, that's a problem. And that's what happens when I don't follow your commandments. But when I follow you, Jesus, and your word, I'm walking on solid ground and I rejoice in it. I can count on you. You're trustworthy. And even though I agree and I admit we don't always like God's commandments, the wiser we are, the more we will love them, treasure them, and even desire the warnings of Scripture to know them and apply them to our lives. When my child, who's too young to swim, is out of Lake Michigan, and she starts walking out deeper and deeper, because she's just kind of like, she's like that. She's fierce, you know? She just walks out. What happens when the waves lift her body up and she can't touch anymore? She, she might bob a little bit. Her toe might hit the bottom and she's back up, but she doesn't have any footing. She's not able to swim. It's going to sweep her away. And isn't it a good feeling when she gets one toe back in the sand and she bounces up and then she gets a part of her foot and then she gets a little closer to the shore and her whole foot's able to touch and she, she's bouncing back up and then both feet planted, finally she's able to hold her weight above her own legs. That's a good feeling. That's the feeling of knowing that the Word of God is solid. 
amid the storms and the, the tides that come in and out, and we're just being swept around on all of our own opinions and all of other people's opinions. This is solid. We should love this. We should love the God who gave us firm truth. In Kansas City, there's a man who was a new believer who loved reading the Bible. He ate the Bible up. He just loved it. And one day on his work site, there was an explosion, and he was blinded by the explosion, a chemical explosion. He also was burned on his hands and arms, and he thought, okay, well, I will learn to continue to read the Bible in Braille. That's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to learn Braille to read with my fingers, and I'll read the Bible. He soon discovered that his nerve endings on his fingers were too damaged to read Braille. Now, what did he do? I'm sure he was discouraged. He might have wanted to give up and say, why did you do this to me, God? I, I, was, I was yours. I was reading your word. Now I can't. Now, he heard about a woman in England who had learned to read Braille with her tongue. And so he said, okay, I'm going to learn to read Braille with my tongue, and he did. This man began reading the Bible with his tongue in Braille. And I read about this back in the 90s. And he'd read through the New Testament 13 times with his tongue. 20-something years ago. More precious than gold. Sweeter than honey. Taste and see that the Lord is good. I could keep telling you stories of people who love to read God's Word to try to inspire you, and I think it's a great idea to tell you what does the Word of God have as an effect on other people. Watch how they love it and try to figure out there's something good inside that book. I should probably start reading it more myself. I could tell more stories, but I'm simply going to call you and say, would you come and taste and see that the Word of God is good? Would you taste it? Would you read it? Would you be stunned by God's glory and His truth today? And if you do that, the final thing that the Bible says in these last couple of verses is this. You will receive grace inconceivable. Verses 12 through 14. Grace inconceivable. If you have a humble spirit, you'll receive God's revelation. The creation, the scripture, and in your own soul, the Holy Spirit will speak to you and change you. If you will be an empty, humble vessel and say, fill me up, Lord. I want to learn from you. I don't want to do this on my own anymore. That's what I'm calling you to do, is to come and do what verse 12 says, to discern your errors. Who can discern his errors? It's kind of a hypothetical question. The, the answer could be, no one can really discern his errors because we have so many deceitful things in our hearts. We're never quite sure how many things we're doing wrong in life. But also, you can discern your errors. You can learn by the Word of God what is truth, and you can judge yourself by the truth and say, okay, yes, I'm falling short here and there and some other places, and then you can begin to make changes by God's grace to receive His grace and begin walking in His truth. He says in verse 13, keep your servant, well in verse 12 and 13, keep your servant from hidden faults and also keep me from presumptuous sins. Hidden faults means things I hide from people. It also could mean things I do so much. It's so common in my life, I don't even think about it anymore. It's like I'm oblivious to it. <laughs> I sin so many ways... I can't even see it anymore. People have to point it out. Keep me from hidden sins, but also keep me from presumptuous sins. Don't presume that you've got it all figured out. You think you're all that. You know better than God. He's saying, help me not to think that God. Both hidden sins and a hard heart is what I, I need to be rescued from. And he says, your word can do this for me. 
You can help me to not have sin ruling me. And you can help me to be blameless and innocent of great transgression. You can help the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart to be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The law is used in three ways in these last few verses. One is, it shows us our sin. The hidden sin and the hard places that we just don't want to change. The law of God does the second thing. It drives us to Christ, our rock and our redeemer. We learn that there is no perfect person on the earth except for Jesus. We learn that we can't get out of our hidden sins or our obvious ones without his help. We learn that we cannot be forgiven or live a good life without falling on the rock whose name is Jesus and having him redeem us or rescue us from our sin. And the third thing, it teaches us to live holy lives. The law of God is good. It gives us direction, gives us insight, so that we can be blameless just like the law of God is called blameless in verse 7. How am I going to be blameless? Well, if I read the Bible out loud, I'm pretty sure that most of the words that come out of my mouth will be acceptable to God. If I meditate on the Word of God all day long in my heart, I'm pretty sure my meditations will be pleasing in the sight. There's no safe way to please God or to have godly words and a godly life unless you're saturated in this book. That's the way to please God. To say, teach me, show me, fill me, use me by your grace. Your inconceivable grace. Why would you use a person like me? I'm not sure. But I can stand here today and guarantee you that if the words of my mouth right now are from this book, they will be pleasing in God's sight and they will bless you and benefit you eternally. I guarantee you that if the meditations of your heart are around this book, the God of creation who is also the redeemer of his people, you will be blessed. You will have joy unspeakable. Your life will change. Let's pray. Let's just pray this simple prayer once again. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable through Jesus Christ alone because you are our Lord and our rock and our Redeemer. I pray now that if anyone in this room has a hard heart towards you or is bored with you, God, that you would stir their hearts now, Holy Spirit, to humble them, you would come into their life and first show them your glory in creation. Let them learn to listen with their eyes about all the beautiful things around us. And we know there's a lot of suffering and there's a lot of pain, there's a lot of confusion. And so then help us to understand your written word, your true written words out of your own mouth to guide us and direct us through this difficult life we live. We can still have a firm footing. We can have sweet truth that delights our hearts. And help us, God, to consider our own sins this morning, to consider our Savior, that we don't have to live in sin anymore. We don't have to keep loving money and loving other idols, and we don't have to keep hurting other people the, the way that we do to protect ourselves. We can really humble ourselves and lay all that down. You can really change us today. So please, Lord God, come change each, each of us. Because if you change us, we know that we'll please you. And it won't happen any other way. We cannot please God unless you're powerfully working in our lives. So come, Holy Spirit. Lead us to our rock. Lead us to our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, today we pray. Amen.